Some of you are already at dinner, in your mind anyway. Uh, before you go there, listen, I uh, wanted to highlight tonight at 5 o'clock, we only have like two family movie nights a year. This is one of the two. We're easing back in, Sunday night worship and things like that. So here is the movie. It is called The Hiding Place. Has anyone seen this movie yet? Um, true story of a family that fought the Nazi madness with the only weapon they had, love. Come tonight, see how that works out, okay? It'll be good. All right, if you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me. I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. As you are flipping there, I uh, wanted to mention a couple things real quick. First of all, uh, there's a lot of people sick right now. So, uh, you know, some people have asked me, are we going to shut down? My answer to that is no. Worship is essential to life. We are worshipers, and uh, I don't want to shut down at all. I uh, I would rather us stay worshiping together long after missions is over and all these things have faded. We will still be worshiping the one true and living God. Uh, but uh, you be you be praying that uh, for our folks that are down right now, we've got a lot of people that are sick. I'm sad to say Kirby's had to go back to Florida. They had to move back to Florida. They've actually sold their property and bought a new place. So haven't seen the Kirby's. Uh, you won't see them again for a while. They will come back to visit sometimes, I think, right, Miss Michelle? Michelle, I mean. So my kids called her that when we first came. But uh, they, they, they took off this week. They are watching us online. So everybody say hi to the Kirby's online there. Uh, we're, we'll, we miss you from afar and wish you were still with us. But uh, had family obligations that they needed to take care of there with Bill's dad having a broken leg. So you'd be praying for them. And so they transition back to life in Florida and away from the mountains. All right. Let me pick up where we were so that you can uh, kind of know the context here as we go into Luke 14. Uh, last time we met together, we were in 13 at the very tail end, and we had Pharisees telling Jesus to leave the countryside area, that Herod was, was going to kill him. And it said some Pharisees were going to kill him. And this is a very clear veiled threat, uh, not maybe not so veiled threat, uh, whether they are wittingly or unwittingly helping Herod and helping uh, the Pharisees that want to get him to Jerusalem to get killed is not very clear from the scripture. But we can say at a minimum this for sure. Jesus is constantly coming into contact with the Pharisees and he is uh, being a dividing line. He's drawing a line that is there. And when he is drawing this line, the more that people hear him preach and teach, the more they love it, the more they follow him, and the more the Pharisees hate him and become angry with him. And yet in the midst of all this, uh, he is going to go to Jerusalem. The Bible tells he set his face towards Jerusalem. He's going to go regardless, knowing that he will be killed. By the way, side note here, you ever heard people say the word regardless and then irregardless? I don't know why people do that because doesn't regardless just mean regardless, right? That's always been a funny thing to me, irregardless. Regardless, Jesus or irregardless. I think people say irregardless when they want to end the conversation. It's like irregardless, it's done, I'm not talking anymore. I think that's when they drop that, right? But so irregardless or regardless, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. And we have this this beautiful picture of the heart of Christ. And we're going to see another picture today in the passage. 
Oh, Jerusalem, if only you had come to me. If you had only come to me, look, I would have, I would have embraced you as a mother embraces the chickens or baby hens under her wing. So Christ has a heart for even the Pharisees and the hardest of hearts in Jerusalem to come and repent and know Him. This is just mind-blowing to me. Like when I read a passage and I'm preparing for preaching, I'm asking myself this question. What's something that's utterly unbelievable about this text? The thing that's unbelievable about this text to me is Jesus is standing before this group of people that absolutely hate Him and hate His ministry. And in the passage today, He's going to have dinner with them. I don't know about you, but when people hate me, I don't want to take road trips with them, and I don't want to eat dinner with them. I don't want anything to do with them. There's a real temptation in our lives to just sort of wash our hands and be done with people like that. But let me remind you of something from Jesus' life. When we are pulled and tempted to do that, tell me at the end of Jesus' ministry, who collects the body of Jesus? Who was it? Do you remember? Joseph of Arimathea, right? Who sat on the council And to be on the council, you had to be a Pharisee. One of the things we're seeing here in Jesus' heart is he's always on the lookout for the Josephs of Arimathea, isn't he? Sometimes we confuse a (laughs) righteous indignation with self-righteousness by wanting to just wash our hands of people that have given us a hard time. Jesus doesn't do that. Aren't you glad he doesn't do that? Isn't that something for us? To ponder. All right, with that in mind, let's now turn our attention to the dinner here. Verse 1 through 6, as one of my secretaries pointed out this week, you're moving slowly through Luke. And yes, I am, but this is worth moving slowly for. Hear the word of God, church. On one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, I'm going to discuss that in just a minute. Probably not a word you're familiar with. Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox, has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Amen. May God have a blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible word because the grass withers, the flowers fade. Say it with me if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever. All right. So here we are at a dinner party at a Pharisee's household uh, of all places having dinner with the enemy, right? We First of all, we rewind the tape here. First thing we see Uh, Jesus is invited over and he's being watched, right? Michael Jackson's not the only one who feels this way, like somebody's watching him. Jesus is being watched here in this passage. And is he being watched in a way that is helpful? No. He's being watched in a way to set a trap. If you look at this, this is constantly the rub the Pharisees are doing, right? They don't like his teaching. They don't like his preaching. One of the main accusations that they're making against Jesus is his preaching and his teaching, his ministry is undercutting and undermining the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments that were handed down. But now to understand this, I need to give you a little bit of background so you understand what they're saying. 
The Pharisees love the law. Uh, I remember reading this week one of the saddest things that there is, and this is a continual issue now, is for people to take the law of God, which was meant to bring us the character of God and in many ways freedom from God, and they use it as a battering ram to beat or a whip to beat people into some kind of man-made submission. And the Pharisees are doing that, right? So let me just give you a made-up example, right? So one of the things the Bible tells us is that being drunk is a sin. We can all agree on that, right, church? Being drunk is sinful. Well, being drunk is a sin, then uh, it's probably not a good idea to take your grocery cart down the aisle that sells alcohol at the store. At least you'd be tempted to put some of the alcohol in your buggy. So just don't go down that aisle, right? That's an extra like provision that's not in the Bible. Well, if that's true, then maybe I shouldn't go to grocery stores that sell alcohol, right? So then <laughs> that's not in the Bible, so I'm just not going to go over there. Well, if I'm not going to go to grocery stores and be tempted to go down the aisle, be tempted to put a bottle in, maybe I should just not uh, use the parking lot of that, of that uh, particular grocery store. And, and then, you know what, maybe I shouldn't even use that road that goes by that grocery store, because on that road is a parking lot, and that, on that parking lot is attached to the building, and that building is an aisle, and in that aisle is out. You see how this gets weird. Right? And this is what Pharisees do. They take something that God has given and they keep adding layers of law, layers of law, layers of law until it, it's just about impossible to break the original law that God has given. And so they have these sort of traditions of men that has come up and cropped up around the law. Uh, we have a similar problem here in 21st century America. Uh, I'm probably going to dispel a few of those in the sermon today. But for now, I just want you to kind of understand what has happened here. So they are trying to catch him. They are watching him closely. And I don't know if you've ever been to a dinner party where you feel like people are watching you to see when you're going to make a mess up. As a pastor, I have felt this tension several times. And it is not a wonderful atmosphere to be involved in, right? Uh, it, it's just kind of a reality that happens. And look at verse 2 here. What's it say? And behold, uh, which is a word or an indicator to let you know something important is about to happen. There was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, does anyone here know what dropsy is? Uh, great, I'm going to tell you what it is. Uh, dropsy is an ancient disease. We don't really talk about it now. As best we can tell, probably dropped out of usage around the 3rd century, 300 A.D., uh, it, it, I don't know all the details of it, but from what I gather from ancient writings and commentary, it sounds like it is a disease of excessive fluid trapped in the body. So I guess the closest thing we would have would be swollen ankles, swollen uh, you know, wrist, hands, fluid around the heart. For those nurses that are in here, what is fluid around the heart? Right, Suzanne? What, congestive heart failure? Probably be this, the closest thing that is there. So if you can imagine this man sitting at dinner, uh, when you have congestive heart failure, you're usually like laboring to breathe, right, Suzanne? It's hard to breathe. It's your, your, if you don't get attention, you're probably going to die, right? I mean, this all intents and purposes. She's, she's like the closest thing I guess we have. How many nurses do we have in here? Am I overlooking nurses? Okay, anyway. She's the closest medical authority in the room. So there you go. So this man is in dire need. He's probably struggling to breathe. He is retaining fluid. It is very obvious to everybody in the room. This man has swollen ankles, swollen wrists. You know, he, he is not doing well. Now, one thing I want to draw your attention to here is the Pharisees are looking at who? Who are the Pharisees looking at in the last passage? They're watching Jesus. That's where their eyes are fixed on. Who's Jesus watching here? No? No, who's he looking at? Right? Look at verse 3. 
Yeah, he's looking at the man with dropsy, right? Seeing this guy. Now, was this man here just because this Pharisee was a nice, like, warm, fuzzy fella and wanted to just invite somebody who was having some medical problems in the community to have dinner with this famous countryside preacher, Jesus? Based on the first verse, I don't think so. I think this feels very much like a setup, sort of like Haman's gallows. They're trying to trap him here with this because they think it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath, right? Uh, Look at verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, right? So there's not really been a physical conversation, but Jesus can hear the heart, can't he? He knows what's going on in their minds. He, he probably is well aware, based on the way this verse reads, of the conversations they had about setting him up with this man with dropsy. Uh, he knows, right? Uh, you can fool your friends, you can fool your family, and you can fool your neighbors, but you cannot fool the creator and the sustainer of all that is, the King of glory, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus knows what's in their hearts. And so he asked them a question, masterfully asked them a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Because remember, the original commandment, the fourth commandment that came down to Moses from Mount Sinai was that they were to have a Sabbath rest. Now, I want you to kind of think with me here. Let me give you a quick synopsis here of why this is important and why this was a big deal for Israel of old. When the Jews come out to Mount Sinai, where are they coming from? Do you remember Old Testament scholars? They're coming from slavery in Egypt. And when you're a slave... Whose will do you do every day? You do your master's will every day, right? Your time is not your time. Your time to rest is not your time to rest. It it belongs to your master. And so when he comes down from Mount Sinai, he says, you're going to have one day a week that is a day of rest. How do you think that sounded to a group of former slaves? It sounds wonderful. (laughs) It sounds freeing. It sounds like what we desperately needed. Now, again, this is modeling creation. God takes a rest after he takes creation. So this is something God's heart is there. But this is something they wanted. And there were provisions made in the Old Testament that it wasn't just going to be a weekly holiday, a day of worship for and rest just for the rich and the elite, but measures were put in place so that those who were servants in the household could enjoy this rest as well. So there were provisions so that servants and those who had less could not be economically taken advantage of and forced into working on the day that God had set aside as a day of rest, right? So this is what the Sabbath is all about. Now it's beginning to make sense as to why... Whenever Jesus makes the point and says, the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for Sabbath, right? Man needs that rest. You know, I've often heard um, people, preachers say, if you don't take a Sabbath, if you don't take a rest, your body will take one for you. And when that happens, it's usually not pretty. And I agree. I think that's true. You were designed to have a Sabbath rest. It was God's plan And it is freedom that is in there to have that. And the question here, Jesus asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, it was a bit of a gray area, but most of your rabbis would probably say you shouldn't do it. It's a form of work. So it would be a violation. But you will not find anything in the entirety of Scripture that states one should not do any healing on the Sabbath. It doesn't say that anywhere, right? Uh, Jasper's a 911 caller and he's sometimes a responder, dispatcher. He sometimes has to work on Sunday. 
and people will come to him, and what will they say, Jasper? Terrible, you're working on Sunday, right? But it turns out your grandpa still has heart attacks on Sunday. People have strokes on Sunday. Praise God we have 911 dispatchers who can be part of the healing process on Sundays. Some of you in this room may have received healing on Sundays, and praise be to God that we have folks like that that are in that position to help with that. And so they're trying to trap him with this. So Jesus asked this question. He says, is it unlawful for us to heal on the Sabbath, right? And of course, what's their response? Verse 4, what happens here? What are, what are, what's their response? They don't have one. Because they know what the Word says. And they know that in the Word it doesn't say. And they know even in their pharisaical, continually building law upon law and tradition, it's a little bit of a gray area. So they can't even say with certainty on the tradition that they have. Then He took him and He healed him. And sent him away. Jesus heals this man. It's a picture of the kingdom that is to come. No disease, uh, no sickness is beyond cure in the kingdom of God and, and outside the power of God to heal. All right? Verse 5. Then the rebuke comes. So they set him up. The rebuke comes, and here it is. Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Which you won't do it. So here's what he's saying. You'll help a beast of burden. You'll help your son if he falls in a well. You'll help anybody who needs that kind of a help. This man that is laboring to breathe, who is struggling from dropsy, and is in very real threat of dying immediately, you aren't even looking at him, much less concerned about how he is going to be healed or treated or helped. Right? So it's an ultimate rebuke. It's, it's a picture. What do we have here in this? We've got two hearts, right? We have the heart of Jesus, full of compassion. And look what he's saying here to these Pharisees. Your heart is so wicked and warped and twisted, you'll help an ox, a beast of burden, out of a ditch on Sunday, but you won't help somebody made in the image of God or worry or concern if they'll even be able to breathe in the next few minutes. How messed up is that? How hypocritical is that? How ungodly is that? Jesus' heart of compassion here. He is going to show mercy, right? Mercy. What, what's he doing here, right? It's funny. I said earlier, this reminds me of Haman's gallows because they're trying to hang him on the gallows here. They're trying to catch him and trap him, right? And Jesus instead traps them in their own thinking and exposes their wicked hearts against his heart of righteousness and purity and truth and mercy. Three things I see here Jesus is doing. And if you're a note taker, I'd recommend you write these down about the Sabbath and how we should think about it. First of all, we know that Jesus worshiped, right? He, in this passage here, joining the Pharisees at the dinner table afterward, he is worshiping on the Sabbath day. He gives this to us as an example. And we should not discount the fourth commandment. Um, in some ways, we have moved in the 21st century American church to think that the fourth commandment doesn't really apply to us anymore. Like we think that uh, the fourth commandment is all about uh, the Old Testament and it's just about in the same category as the ceremonial laws that they don't carry any kind of a weight for us today. Well, that's not how Jesus lived his life. He, he, he would go and worship 
on the Sabbath. He would eat with people. Uh, he would be with people on the Sabbath, with those that claimed to be close to God. He gave us this. And I have a great quote by C.J. Riley on this issue of not just flippantly approaching the Sabbath as one, one issue here. C.J. Riley, a great preacher of yesterday, said this, Our Lord does not do away with the observation of a weekly day of worship, and He does, doesn't do it anywhere else in the four Gospels. Thousands have rushed to hastily conclude that Christians have nothing to do with the fourth commandment and it is no more binding on us than the Messianic law about the sacrifices. But there is nothing in the New Testament to justify that conclusion. The plain truth is that the Lord did not abolish the law of a weekly Sabbath. He only freed it from incorrect interpretations, purified it from man-made additions, and He did not tear out of the Decalogue, the fourth commandment. He only stripped it of the miserable traditions with which the Pharisees had encrusted the day and by which they had made it not a blessing but a burden. He left the fourth commandment where he found it, a part of the eternal law of God of which no jot or tittle will ever pass away. May we never forget this. He's right, isn't he? The Sabbath is meant to be a day of worship and rest. But let us not also forget what Jesus is teaching us here in the passage. The second thing I think He's teaching us is this. We see in this passage frequently Jesus' heart to do mercy to others on the Sabbath. It's good to do mercy to others on the Sabbath. He didn't let this man fall victim to the situation, the disease of dropsy that he had there, he intervened and he did that. He showed them mercy. And then also, finally, Jesus gave permission here to the disciples, his followers, to do deeds of necessity on the Sabbath day. You know, I said a minute ago, one kind of ditch on the right here is that, uh, or excuse me, a ditch on the left would be that, well, the, the fourth commandment doesn't apply to us and to just kind of walk away from that. But then a ditch on the right here. Uh, a, a similar ditch that we have to watch out for, and I think this is an issue in the Bible Belt, is some people have tried to make the Sabbath into this legalistic time where you can and can't do checklists, right? Uh, so you can't mow your yard on the Sabbath. Really, if you wanted to go with the spirit of what this text is teaching, your neighbor that's on an oxygen machine that can't get up and mow and whose yard is about a foot tall probably shouldn't mow your yard on the Sabbath. You should mow your neighbor's yard who's in need. And unless somebody steps in and helps them, it's just going to go continue to go crazy and snakes are going to overrun the whole place, right? That would be a better way to, to view this. It's not wrong to do mercy on the Sabbath ever in any situation. Uh, some of you here, you know, we're a little younger on this side of worship service and you get emails every week and you see names of people who are in the hospital or are homebound or they're sick. And it's, you, you go and you visit family and friends you know and that's easy for you to do, to go. Some of you it might be more of a challenge if you're more introverted, but for some of you it's easy to go and know, to people you know. Why don't you pick somebody off the prayer list here at Grace that you don't know and call them, write them a note visit them. Why don't you do that on a Sabbath, right? That's a great way to show some mercy to somebody. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, among our senior adults, um, loneliness is an epidemic. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is awful. 
the way some of them the only interaction they have is when they can make it to church and some of them can't make it all the time and it's rough and I and I'm only one person right listen we we have uh Becky and I have parents we're trying to take care of too and help and it's hard and you know when you're pastoring a church it's like multiplied out exponentially and it's hard to get listen I was on the road two days bouncing between hospitals and homes two days two eight-hour work days and I still didn't get to everybody okay I couldn't get to everybody because I'm just one person. But you know who's not one person? The whole church, right? You can take a Sunday afternoon, pick a name off that prayer sheet of somebody that's in need, call them, pray with them, go visit them, whatever you're comfortable with. I know it's blue season, but you can do something to express God's mercy that you're concerned about them and that you're praying for them. I'm telling you, it'll make a huge impact in somebody's life for the gospel. It will. It will. And that's something small everybody can do. So this morning, as we kind of bring this to a close and land the plane, I don't know where you are. Uh, I don't know if you are someone who has accepted Christ and you have finally found your Sabbath rest and you have repented of your sins, you've trusted Him fully. Praise God for that. Or if you're here somebody today, I think there's a call to action to either see the Sabbath now, to want to worship with God's people, to have that joy of being around those who are, are loving Him, to look forward to that. I hope that's you this morning. Or maybe this, maybe you just need to show mercy and have your eye on those who are in need and who are merciful. You know, one other thing that I want to, one other kind of closing thought I want to finish out the sermon with comes from a quote from Paul David Tripp, a guy I like to read a lot. I actually post this on my Facebook page. If you're interested in this quote, you can go and find it there. And it's about corporate worship, which is what we're doing right now. We're gathering together corporately at the agreed upon time as a church body to worship God, worship Jesus Christ. And uh, here's what he says, corporate worship is designed to expose the lie of independent righteousness, that we're somehow righteous independently from God and right standing without God or without Jesus, and to welcome us to rest in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that right? And isn't that true? Isn't that what we do every time we gather together? We're beating back the lie in our own heart that we can somehow do this on our own. And we're resting together collectively in the righteousness of Christ. Now that's the kind of Sabbath that I want, right? One where I don't trust in my own uh, righteousness and my own ability. Uh, So the call here is what? Uh, Last week preaching at the church I was at before I came here in Indiana sang a beautiful song. It was a redone version of Come All Ye Faithful, except they changed it to Come All Ye Unfaithful. And that's really what the call is today, isn't it? All you who are trusting in the lie of your own faithfulness, of your own righteousness, all you who are working and laboring to the point of exhaustion to make yourself right with the Lord, the invitation is to come now. Come and rest in Christ and in His righteousness. Exchange yours for His. Won't you do that while we sing in response? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, uh, we thank you for the Sabbath, that you gave us that gift, that it is a gift of of rest, of worship, of, of pushing back against the lies in our own hearts, that, God, we can come to you this morning as we are, and we can be healed, just as this man with dropsy who is hurting, who is on the very verge of utter destruction. Some of us are very much to that end. Well, Lord, we thank you that it is not the end, that there is a way. 
And for those of us who are already resting in you and Sabbathing in you and enjoying that, Lord, is there not a call for us today to not just rest, but to show mercy for those that are in need, God? Help us to keep our eyes lifted and focused as you did on those who may be sitting right across the table from us, right across the table, who are just so in need at this moment. Lord, won't you keep our eyes and our gaze on you and help us to see what you see as we show mercy to others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to sneak down here to the back. If you're here today, I'm going to be sitting right here at the snack shack. If you don't know Christ, you've never rested in Him as, as He is the ultimate Sabbath. Won't you come and rest in His righteousness this morning? Won't you do that today? Uh, stop laboring like you are. If you're here today and you want to be baptized, follow Jesus to the next best step, let's get that started. Or if you want to become part of this church family, I'll be there to receive you in the back as we sing. Please stand as we sing.